We find the account of Hezekiah's life in 2 Chronicles 29 to 32. We also find it in 2 Kings 18 to 20. And then uh, much of what you find in 2 Kings 18 through 20, you have almost verbatim, verbatim in Isaiah 36 to 39. So you have really three sources of information in the Old Testament uh, to learn about this time of Hezekiah. And you remember from uh, the prophet Isaiah last week that Hezekiah was one of the kings under whom he served as a prophet. And we're introduced to Hezekiah, who comes to the throne at 25. In the Second Chronicles 29.2, we're told that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. Now, that's arresting to us because David wasn't his immediate father. I mean, David is back a number of generations. Uh, his, his father, the one he grew up with, was wicked and unbelieving. His name was Ahaz. He ruled some 16 years. So, ever since Hezekiah was nine years old, his father, the king, had been wicked in his reign. But Hezekiah was less like his own father than he was like his distant ancestor, David the king. In fact, David is going to be kind of the benchmark, the one that we measure whether a king is good or bad by whether he was like David or not. Now, I just want to say, you know, some of you had great parents, godly parents, and you could say, well, you know, I know how to live for the Lord because, you know, God showed me. I had a, I had a dad that, that loved the Lord and that lived out godliness at home. In fact, he was, he was better in private than he was even in public, and I loved that about him because he, he was, you know, honest, and uh, he was who he was. He wasn't putting on a show for other people. Um, but Hezekiah didn't have that kind of dad, and a number of you didn't have that kind of dad. You didn't necessarily have a, a godly dad. Maybe you had a dad that was a deacon or a preacher, but he wasn't a good man. You know, he pretended like he was a good man on the outside, but he wasn't a good man at home. Maybe you had a dad that, that never did believe in Jesus and never did live for him at all. Um, and, and sometimes we think, well, you know, I could, I could live for God if I had only had parents that lived for God. Understand that your living for God has to do with your own connection with God yourself. Sometimes good parents have children that don't live for God. Sometimes parents that don't live to God, for God have children that live for God. The important thing is that you have a connection to God the Lord, and Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You know, if you can think about it this way, don't live your life just for what other people can see in your life. Live your life for what God sees in your life, because He sees your heart. He knows what you think about. He knows what you desire. He knows what your practices are in public and in private, and if you live for Him and trust in Him, then you'll be more like David and more like Hezekiah. Um, so, don't, don't take yourself off the hook if you say, well, I just can't live for God because I had parents that didn't live for God. Don't feel like you're doomed. And if you had parents that lived for God, it doesn't mean that you will. Make sure that you're following the Lord yourself. Well, what do we see in Hezekiah's life? And really, the, the overall outline of his life I've given as repentance, revival, and rescue. Repentance, revival, and rescue. Repentance is that turning around. You're going the wrong way, and you, you start, you turn around, and you start going the right way. Your mind changes. Your disposition of heart changes. Revival is when life comes. 
And, of course, God gives life. And then rescue is obvious when you're in big trouble, and then God comes in and rescues you. And that's what we see in the life of Hezekiah. So let's look at repentance first. We find this chronicled for us in 2 Chronicles 29. Hezekiah understood that the nation's military and economic troubles were rooted in unfaithfulness to Yahweh. Now, I want you to think about our own country. Because people debate and argue about the, the country and the borders and the economy and uh, the taxes and the military and, and what we should be involved in and what we should not be involved in. The biggest question, though, for our country is, are we right with God? Because a lot of the other troubles are connected to whether or not we're right with God. And there certainly are a lot of people that are trusting in the Lord. There are a lot of people that aren't and that are rebels against the Lord. Well, Hezekiah led a movement of repentance. He started with cleansing the temple. Think about it. The temple that was supposed to be devoted to the Lord had, had the, the previous king had brought in uh, idols and other kinds of practices that defiled the temple. And so we read about this in the first 19 verses of Second Chronicles. I'm going to read it to you. If you have your Bibles and you can find 2 Chronicles chapter 29, you can follow with me because I'm just going to read excerpts to kind of give you a sense of the storyline. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, hear me, this is verse 4, and then verse 5, hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. So he goes directly to the Levites and he says, okay, let's clean this place up. Let's reestablish the worship of the Lord. In verse 16, the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. They brought out of it all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it out to the brook Kidron. And they went into Hezekiah the king and said, we have cleansed, this is verse 18, we have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the table for the showbread and all its utensils, all the utensils that King Ahaz, that was Hezekiah's dad, discarded in his reign when he was faithless. We have made ready and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. So they cleansed the temple, they got it ready for worship, and that was the next thing that happened is Hezekiah oversaw the restoration of worship of Yahweh, beginning in verse 20 and down to verse 36. We read about it. I'm going to drop into the story in verse 28. The whole assembly worshiped, the singers sang, 
The trumpeter sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves in worship. And Hezekiah, the king, and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshiped. Now, that sounds in a lot of ways like a typical Sunday morning at Hampton Park. But think about what it would be to pull that off if you hadn't done that for 15, 16 years. Like, how many 16-year-olds do we have? Do we have any 16-year-olds in the congregation? Okay, we got some. Okay, think about if your whole life you had never, ever seen a worship service, and suddenly you finally get to see one where you're worshiping the true God. That was what was happening in Israel, but it, but it took concentrated effort. It took the repentance and now this restoration of worship. You read in verse 35, besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was fat of the peace offerings or drink offerings to the burnt offerings. And of course, they're under the old covenant where they're, they're doing all this, uh, the offerings before the Lord. Thus, the service of the house of the Lord was restored. And Hezekiah, we read in verse 36, Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people, for the thing came about suddenly. I want you to think about that for just a moment. This restoration, this repentance, the cleansing of the temple and restoration of a worship came about suddenly. Nobody would have thought it was even possible. In fact, if you had been just a typical um, Jewish man or woman in that day, you would think with the Assyrians knocking at the door and and everything in shambles, and maybe you're a worshiper of the Lord, but you're saying, we're in deep trouble. This is never going to turn around. It's over. And suddenly it turned around, and God used the leadership of Hezekiah to do it. The Levites jumped in. They repented. They cleaned out the idolatrous things. They restored the worship. And what, what verse 36 makes clear is that this was from God. No, to have this kind of radical change was something that was a gift from God. God was at work to produce this kind of repentance and the revival that would come from it. Sometimes, we're going to go to revival next. You know, sometimes people will talk about a week of meetings as revival meetings. Well, that speaks of their desire that it might bring revival, but it won't produce revival Because life comes from God. Revival is a God-sent thing. It's not a man-made thing. If it's man-made, it's not revival. It might be religion, but it's not revival, okay? What God produces, God's the one that produces revival and brings life. When you read the history of revivals, you read the revivals in our own country, the First Awakening, Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, you... You wouldn't think that, that God was going to send that kind of blessing. In fact, I can remember preachers saying, well, you know, once a nation has, has apostatized, once they've fallen away from the Lord, the Lord never turns them back. Well, I'm sorry, the Lord has done that. Throughout history, it's called revival, okay? Nations will fall away, but it's God who brings them back. You know, one of the things, reading an article 
um, not long ago written by Tim Keller, who's now with the Lord, and he just challenged us to not just to, to put out of the realm of possibility that there could be a third great awakening. Now, I think if you check your faith meter, most of you don't believe it's possible. That's okay, because it won't depend on you. When God sends it, you'll know it. And, and often what God is doing in the meantime, even in these times that, that seem dark, is there are pockets of revival here and there. You see people whose lives turn around. You see churches that revive. You see sections of the country that revive. My father-in-law, his first pastorate uh, was, was over in the PD region of South Carolina, Hartsville. Uh, so he's Greenhorn pastor, going to his first pastorate, and, and they had an evangelist come through to preach. And God in that first pastorate sent genuine revival to that church. I mean, in a relatively small church, tens, twenties, thirties, hundreds of people coming to Christ, along with the proverbial town drunk. I mean, the, the, the kind of thing you read about um, in other, and this has happened in other places as well. So I just want to, I just want to put it on the, you know, on the radar for you, that that revival is a God thing, and because it's a God thing, it's not an impossible thing. For with God, all things are possible, and I, I would encourage you to pray for it that God might send it. And so we see revival, and it's chronicled for us in Second Chronicles thirty and thirty-one. First. You see the national celebration of the Passover. When I say national celebration, I mean not just Judah. Now, Hezekiah is ruling in the southern tribes, but the northern, a number of people from the northern tribes are going to get involved with this as well. You wouldn't have expected this to happen at all, and this is what happens. So we read, if we're, I'll give you some excerpts of it. In verse 5, so they decreed to make a proclamation throughout Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north, and the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem, for they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah. I mean, think about the faith of this, sending this proclamation even into the northern tribes, with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped in the hands of the kings of Assyria. Remember, the northern tribes are, have been taken captive by the Assyrians. Verse 9, For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away His face from you if you return to Him. In verse 25, The whole assembly of Judah, the priests and the Levites, the whole assembly that came out of Israel, and the sojourners, those are people who are not Israelites that were foreigners, but who'd come into the land, out of the land of Israel, the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. There's great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time, listen to this, of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. That's how long it had been since they had seen a celebration of the Passover. Because you remember that it, under Solomon's son Rehoboam is when the kingdom split. So, this hasn't happened since the days of Solomon. Then the priests and the Levites arose 
and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their pray, prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. So they're rejoicing on earth, and God is applauding in heaven. God is part of all of this revival, and it, they were focused on this national celebration of the Passover, which, of course, not only pointed back to their release from Egypt, but also pointed forward to Christ, who would be our Redeemer, the Lamb that would take away the sin of the world. And then the next thing we see in this revival is Hezekiah's efforts to perpetuate right worship in chapter 31, and that involved a number of things. In other words, he doesn't want this just to be a, a short kind of blip on the screen. He doesn't want this to be, oh, remember that year when we had the Passover? Remember that year when there was revival? Yeah, remember that year. Nothing ever really came of it. He wants to make sure that this will go on for some time. So one of the first things they did was to destroy the false worship centers. In verse 1 of chapter 31, now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, Ephraim and Manasseh. So not just in Judah, but also in some of the northern tribes until they had destroyed them all. Then all the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his possession. So they destroyed the places that were used for worshiping idols, that were used for worshiping Baal and uh, Baal's consort Ashtaroth, because people would worship in the groves and with these pillars, and they would worship false gods. They destroyed those. They got rid of all that idolatrous paraphernalia. And then in verse 2, we see the appointment of worship leaders, the Levites, Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites, division by division, each according to his service, the priests and the Levites, for burnt offerings and peace offerings, to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord, and to give thanks and praise. You know, if there's going to be daily offerings, and if there's going to be worship services, somebody has to do the work involved to make sure that happens. Well, who's going to do the work? Okay? And when are they supposed to do it? What day did they do it? Uh, what day, you know, who, who's on deck? And so, just like we're, we will plan a worship service, and there's work that goes involved in planning it. You plan out, okay, what are, what's going to be happening? What are we going to be preaching on, you know, for, for this month and that month? And, and, and Uncle Fred is choosing choir numbers to go with. Okay, you have to plan it, and you have to work it. And Hezekiah did this the same thing with the Levites, appointing divisions so that they each have their assigned role at their assigned time. And then you have the establishment of faithful tithes, because if there wasn't, if there wasn't provision for those that were devoting themselves to leading the worship, then they didn't have time to lead the worship. They had to go farm the fields. So for this to perpetuate you have to establish faithful ties. He commanded, verse 4, the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. Okay, if they're going to teach the law of the Lord, they best make sure they know it and that they're studying it. In verse 6, and the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things. They have dedicated the Lord their God and laid them in heaps. Now, this wasn't Hezekiah's wild idea. This is what the Lord had prescribed as to how worship would be perpetuated that people are faithfully giving. See, how is it that we are able um, to make sure the gospel gets 
to other countries of the world. Okay? Well, it, how does that happen? Well, you send people there. Well, while they're there, where are they going to eat? What are, what are they going to eat and where are they going to live? And how are they going to pay for it? Okay? Well, they're going to pay for it with the gifts of God's people so that they can be sharing the gospel in those foreign places. And so, you know, the things that matter to us, we, we put our money where our mouth is. We, we provide for these things to keep happening. And this is exactly what happened uh, with Israel. Verse 11, Hezekiah commanded them to prepare chambers in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them, and they faithfully brought in the contributions, the tithes, and the dedicated things. The chief officer in charge of them was Conaniah the Levite, with Shimei, his brother, as second, and names a number of other people. So, what's that about? Well, if people are going to bring in, remember, they're not, just bring, they're not just bringing in coins. They're bringing in, you know, cattle and sheep and grain, and where are you going to put it? I mean, what if we had, oh, we're going to, we're having an offering of cattle and sheep and grain. Just bring it to the church. Okay, Glenn, take care of it. You have to have some place to put it, right? So, what this shows, you know, sometimes we can get a little frustrated with the logistics of things. We, we can get a little frustrated, particularly in a, a church our size with all the, all the moving parts and trying to figure out how this, you know, try not to get in each other's way and try to work together. Well, this is exactly what's happening here. Anything that's important means that, that you plan for it, you make time for it. I mean, this comes down to even personal things. Like, look, you say, oh, well, you know, I feel like I need to spend more time <clears throat> reading my Bible, studying my Bible, and praying. Okay, when are you going to do it? Where is it on your calendar? I mean, like, tomorrow morning, when are you going? Not, do you want to do it? When are you going to do it? How, how where is it going to fit? Are you, or do you think you're going to just live your day like, we're just going to rock along and, and then maybe, oh, you know, I think I might just read the Bible a little bit. It's not going to happen, okay? But you make a plan, you make a place. You just, same thing with giving. Oh, well, if we have something left over at the end of the month, you won't have anything left over, okay? You, you know, give to keep, make it a plan. Um, that's why in the New Testament, you know, first of the week, you know, when you, when you get your income, you set aside part of it for the Lord right at the beginning, and uh, you'll have enough, but if you don't do that, I can pretty much guarantee you won't have much left over, if anything, at the end. So, all of this is driven by heart devotion to God's law. Verse 20, thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah. He did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord is God, and every work that he undertook in the service of the house is God, and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. You know, all these logistics, all these people, all these plans, all these worship services, all this cleaning out of the temple, you know where it began? In the heart of one man. And it spread to the hearts of others. And that devotion to the Lord led them to do the things that needed to happen. God still works the same way today. You never know what God will do with one heart fully devoted to Him. You, you never know what, how God can use you to 
influence an entire generation for the Lord. You just don't know. But give God your heart. Give, give Him your loyalty and seek to do what is good and right and faithful before the Lord your God. And just see what God does with it. In fact, some of what God does with it, you may not even see in your lifetime. But when it's all said and done, you never know what the fruitfulness of it might be. We still benefit from, from what, we're benefiting from what Hezekiah did millennia ago. He doesn't know you at all. He never met you. But, but you're influenced by him and his own service to the Lord. Well, the third thing that we see in Hezekiah's life is rescue. In 2 Chronicles 32, and we also see connected with this is the importance of prayer, because in both cases you have Hezekiah going to the Lord in prayer. We see rescue, first off, from foreign invasion. The Assyrians were the superpower of the day. They had already conquered the northern tribes, and now they're banging on the door of taking Judah as well. Now, I want you to step back and think about that for just a moment. So, here you are, Hezekiah. So, God, I've done everything that, that I think you want me to do. We, we've turned back to you. We've repented. We've restored worship. We've done the Passover. I mean, it's, it's been amazing revival. Here come the Assyrians. Did you, did you catch the disconnect? Like, wait a minute, God. We, we're doing right before you. Why are the Assyrians coming? You do realize that just because you're serving the Lord doesn't mean you're not going to face hardship or enemies or troubles. So first we have this foreign evasion, and they're right there besieging the city. And God tells Hezekiah, <clears throat> works through him to speak to the people, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that's with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now he's saying that to the people, and then he's also going to be back in his prayer chamber praying to God help. Okay. So, Sennacherib, arrogant, successful king who thinks he's in charge of his own destiny, and actually, if you read through these accounts in Isaiah and Kings and Chronicles, it's really an entertaining way that God talks to this arrogant king. And he just says, I put a hook in your nose, and do you think that what you're doing is just all your ideas? Is I planned it long ago. Like, you're not doing anything that I haven't already given you permission to do. And by the way, when crazy things happen in our world, don't freak out. God knew about it long ago. He planned it long ago. His program is still going to happen like he wants it to happen, no matter what arrogant kings or nations do. Well, thus said Sennacherib, king of Israel, Assyria, on what are you trusting and what do you endure that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you, the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Syria? He goes on to say in verse 15, now therefore do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. Do not believe him, 
For no God of any nation or any kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? Well, we're told in verse 20 that Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria, 185 soldiers in one night, dead as doornail. And so he returned with shame on his face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, and this is some 20 years later, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So much for mighty Sennacherib. And there's much more to the story that you should read for yourself because it's it's very entertaining. It's high drama. Hezekiah was delivered not just from foreign evasion. He was delivered from terminal illness as well. We read a very brief account in 2 Chronicles. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. So we're going to jump over. Let me read to you from 2 Kings 20. Um, more to the story. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out in the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back, say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I've seen your tears, behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. You say, wait a minute, I thought they were already delivered. Well, that tells you that this account of his sickness, this sickness probably happened before the invasion of Sennacherib, okay? So, a lot of times when we're giving the history, it's not necessarily coming to us in order. This sickness was evidently before that. Well, we read that the, the king of Babylon <clears throat> heard about this remarkable recovery of Hezekiah, and he sent envoys with letters and presents to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah welcomed them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house and all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, at the time, Assyria was a superpower of the world. Babylon, though, is coming close behind. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, and all that is in your house, that which your fathers have stored up to this day, shall be carried to Babylon, Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. There will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? That always bugged me that he responded that way. But when I read the account in Second Chronicles 32... It gives a little more insight. It says, Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him. This is verse 25 of 2 Chronicles 32. For his heart was proud. So all the success that he enjoyed 
And we've seen this often cause pride in his heart. Therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. But, and this is the part we didn't see in 2 Kings, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So that's why Hezekiah said, it's good, it won't happen in my days. It's because that had been, you know, God had blessed his humbling his heart after this prideful move. And, and so God delayed when the Babylonians would come. So verse 31, we read, so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him, to know all that was in his heart. He said, well, why did God do that? Well, I think there's a reason. When God uses a person, sometimes we credit the person with what actually belongs to God. We credit the person with the power that actually came from God. And we sometimes think, too, that, that people that God uses must be perfect people. And yet, as we read the Scriptures, and, you know, David himself, we find that they're, they're, they're people like we are. They're, they're, they're often weak. Their faith falters. They do dumb stuff and even sinful stuff at times. And, and that doesn't mean that God will not, therefore, work. And so, Hezekiah's legacy is that of a righteous king. But that does not mean he did not face troubles nor that he did not evidence personal weakness. His God, Yahweh, nonetheless gave repentance, revival, and rescue in Hezekiah's days. And just to be true to reality, Hezekiah would die, and Manasseh, his son, would take the throne, and what would follow would be 52 of the worst years that Judah had ever known. Or Manasseh was perhaps the wickedest king ever. But just to put a little glimmer of hope there, even Manasseh, toward the end of his reign, repented and came back to the Lord. So what's the lesson of all this? Look, your personal history and mine and the history of our nation will, will, will be periods of light and dark. It'll be like, it'll be like winter and spring, and summer, and fall, and winter, and spring. And yet, the God who controls the seasons also controls and moves to bring repentance, and revival, and rescue to His people. It gives us every reason to be praising the Lord. God, we thank You for the lessons of Hezekiah's life, and Lord, help us be faithful in our day to seek You with all our hearts. And Lord, may You use us to help promote righteousness in the land. And God, in your mercy, would you send repentance, revival, and rescue to our own people in our own land for your glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.